My name is Tad Stones, creator of Chippendale's Rescue Rangers and Darkwing Duck, the terror that flaps in the night. And I'm on Spoiler Country. Shh, don't tell anybody. Human beings of the world, it's time to enter the spoilerverse through our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on scpod.net. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the cult of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley, and today on the show, well, it's it's pretty exciting if you're a Darkwing Duck fan. Yeah, it is, man. It's uh, it's the man himself, the 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 Tad of the Stones, the Tad Stones man who created Darkwing Duck. It's exciting. <laughs> the Tad ain't passing no stones. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah, we don't know, but. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> talked to Tad Stones, creator of yeah, Darkwing no, no, Duck. No, 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 no. Guy is amazing. He's done. Yeah. If you just look, look him up on IMDb and see all the, the plethora of '90s cartoons he was involved with, and stuff recently too. Yeah, he's really he was a really nice guy. Uh, I mean, he had a lot to say. He did have a lot to say, and it was this was you and me talking with him, and it, it was just dude. I was a huge Darkwing Duck fan as a kid because you know, that show Were came you? on right in the prime. I was right the right age for that show because that was like what ninety one, ninety two, somewhere around yeah, there. Ninety one, ninety two. So I was like nine, ten years old. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you. see, I was like 18. So you love 17. Cool. I still, I appreciate it, <laughs> right? I appreciated it. I thought it was cool. I yeah. love the tagline. I still say that. I am the terror that flops in the night. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So good. And it cracks me up when I see it referenced in pop culture, you yeah. know? Dude, still to this day, whenever I hear the phrase, uh, like the phrase, you know, when you're in trouble, I'm always like, when you're in trouble, you call DW, you know, every time. <laughs> I, in, fact, I, in fact, I said that today to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this guy was really cool. And he, he yeah. worked with Mike Magnolia, which was awesome. Yeah, he's done so much stuff, man. It's it's a plethora of work, new stuff, old stuff. I mean, his Disney stuff and the stories he tells us about, about working at Disney is just really cool. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's actually really a joy to listen to. It is. So why don't we just sit back and listen to Tad in his own words? Hey guys, we're back, and today we got well, we got something really special for you guys today. We are here with I don't know about you, but I was a teenager when this came out, and I still loved it. And he's worked on some stuff that I really loved in the mid two thousands or so. And this is Tad Stone, actually Tad Stones, plural. Get it right. Thank you. Yeah, and he as is in the, the rolling. Yes. Yeah, the creator of DuckTales, not DuckTales, but, well, through DuckTales, Darkwing Duck. Well, hello, hello. 
Hello, hello. Well, thank you everyone. so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. So far. So we'll see how so, this goes. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it could take a turn for the worst. We'll ask you to get in a half an hour and see how we're doing, okay? You're right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, Disney, 30 years. That's yeah, a long another time. another 10 years after that, bouncing around the industry at different projects. Yeah. What was the last one that you worked on? The last one I got to go out with the cool kids because I did a uh, show for Netflix called uh, Kulapari, An Army of Frogs, which is a real weird project. But I was just hired as a director, but I ended up, you know, co-writing every script within a way too short amount of time. Uh, but it was I wasn't in control of the story. Uh, I could push it certain ways. But the scene by scene stuff, I definitely wrote. Yeah. How did how did Tad Stones get into animation? What was what was the driving force? Well, when I was a kid, my dad worked for a carnation company and they had a deal with Disneyland with, you know, the Main Street Carnation Company restaurant and just an ongoing classic Disneyland sponsor. Yeah. Uh, and that meant we got from the earliest days of Disneyland, we got a trip once a year at the company party or company picnic, whatever was held at Disneyland. So right about where Pirates of the Caribbean now uh, sits in Anaheim was just a park, like a literal grassy picnic tables type park. And that's where the picnic was. And they would set up a tent and Wally Bogue and the Golden Horseshoe Review would put on a show and they would play bingo. And then at a certain time, they would open the gates and we would enter the park through the back way. Now, at the time, I was just a kid, so it, it was what it is. These days, I look back on it and go, you're playing bingo and Disneyland is right there? It's like 50 <laughs> feet away is Disneyland and you're putting dried beans on numbers? Uh, anyway, so my dad had wanted to be a cartoonist. So I grew up, uh, when, but he came out of college in the Great Depression. So he basically took what jobs he uh, did. And he didn't, you know, he had a family instead of doing the come home from work and chase your dream type thing. But he had a lot of how to draw books and how to cartoon books. Yeah. And uh, I just, those are the books I read growing up. And then going to Disneyland all those times, I went to the Art of Animation exhibit that I loved and bought the book, The Art of Animation, by uh, Bob Thomas, the original version, which was focused on Sleeping Beauty. And then, of course, the Disneyland TV show and the wonderful wonderful world of Disney and then the wonderful world of color. Um, yeah. Always had those behind-the-scenes parts that showed Disneyland, which I love, but they also had – special episodes about animation. And I just loved it. I love cartoons. I, because of those art books, I was never mystified. There was never that point where I had to go, wait, people make cartoons. I just, I knew they did. Cause I grew up with all these cartoonist books of, you know, and the Disney book of guys working behind the scenes. But when I was in high school and then uh, went to college, I was thinking like, well, I want to do animation, but the only place worth working at would be Disney. Uh, at least the only place doing full animation is Disney. Yeah. 
Everything else was, you know, very cheap stuff like Hanna-Barbera stuff that was designed to be on television for a very, they had to turn out tons of material at a very, you know, cheap cost. And they came up with the extreme limited animation, which didn't have the creative design of like some of the UPA stuff. It was, no, this is how we get something on TV. Uh, and that didn't interest me. It was the, ironically, I was not interested in TV animation. Anyway, I thought that, well, Disney's the only place worth going to, and they've got all their guys that started the studio with Walt. So, I don't know, maybe I'll go into comics or whatever. And, you know, went into uh, college and started one year as an art major, and all my English teachers wanted me to switch to English because of my writing. Yeah. And then I've, they created a, a major called humanities, which sounded like it could combine both. Turned out it didn't. Strangely enough, all the art courses I did from then on were all 3d things. I became a teacher's assistant in uh, ceramics. Uh, I have a pottery wheel in the garage that I haven't used <laughs> in several decades. But the main thing I, the, my girlfriend at the time, Mm-hmm. is now my wife <laughs> and uh but at the time her her uh, sweet mate at school in the dorms was tori atencio who's uh i think still works at disney in uh, imagineering as a interior designer uh but her father was ex atencio who worked with ward kimball was a layout guy also in animation anyway through her she said you ought to in my senior year trying to figure out what i'm going to do in the following year she said, you ought to try for the training program. And I went, what, what, what training program? What I had believed about they had their guys, they aren't looking, was actually true when I was thinking that. But I guess in 71, I want to say, yeah. they, Robin Hood had come out and made a lot of money, $6 million domestic, yeah. uh, which back then was huge. Uh, I saw Robin Hood in the theater. So they just, they uh, basically said, uh, they talked to the animation guys saying, well, what are you doing to train new people? And they said, what? We, we thought you were going to shut Roy Sr. always said they were going to shut down the animation division. And he started saying that around the time of, I want to say, Bambi. Like after they had a few in the can, he said, we can just re-release these every few years. Uh, yeah. Walt said, no, we're going to do more. And then when Walt got interested in Disneyland, it was still – and animation was very ex- expensive. I guess Walt was approached again. He says, no, I started the business with these guys. You know, let's, you know, we got to keep this going until, you know, so they, ha- until they can retire. Yeah. Uh, and what saved animation around that time was the Xerox process because it suddenly hugely brought down the costs of doing an animated film. Anyway, suddenly they created a training program, which basically was Eric Larson sitting in his room, working with a bunch of, you know, new people in the next room. So I was lucky enough. I called in to get information. The name of the guy to talk to was Donald Duckwall. He said he had (laughs) the name first, but it made it very easy to remember. But uh, I went in for, I just called up to get information and he uh, kind of thought I was coming in with my stuff. So suddenly the following Thursday, I had an, an appointment to drop off my portfolio you know, at the Disney Studios. Well, nice. again, I wasn't an, an art major. 
But luckily, I was that year when I was the TA in ceramics, my ceramics teacher took over the art department because the original head was on sabbatical. And so he, I, he could even do the goofy yell, which he was happy to demonstrate. But That's he cool. let me go back to art classes and sit in on life drawing and do sketches. And so in one week, I tried to, you know, portfolios are much more polished now. And there, they just wanted to see how you do you do life drawing and how do you do sketches from life. So I went in, met with Don and uh, Ed Hansen, who was the manager of the department. And uh, they looked through it and they said, well, these look good, but we really need action sketches, just quick gesture drawings. And I don't think they mentioned when they needed it. And after I got in, I talked to guys who had come back every six months. I thought they needed it immediately. So over the weekend, I basically watched, I think it was basketball mostly on TV. And I was not a sports guy, but I watched it and sketched off the TV screen. And I cheated a little bit by looking at really cool, cool poses in the Sports Illustrated magazine. But <laughs> nice. they really liked two things. One, that I'd come back, that I they liked my drawings that are, captured the action. But also, I had done a lot of them, and I'd come back with them quickly, and which is basically what you need in animation. And they actually used mine as examples. They had never thought of drawing off a television before. And they, after that, talked to, you know, when people are coming in for interviews. And I do not think of myself as the good artist of the bunch of the guys I came in with. Anyway, that's how I got in with, uh, I started the training program five months after Ron Clemens, who is the director of, you know, and writer of Little Mermaid and Aladdin and uh, Treasure Planet and Hercules and Moana, along with John Musker. But Ron was there. And then I think three months later, uh, Glenn Keane came in. So that's where I was, right in that little nook. Uh, And it was great. We you had eight weeks to basically do two personal tests that were again. Now you see personal tests coming out of art schools that are fully colored with soundtracks and all that. Ours were very, very basics, very rough. And my first one was just an alligator doing a little jig, throwing his sword up in the air and and, uh, catching it with his tail. And they thought that I had, they had had a feeling for the alligator's personality. And that's what they took to. And it had life to it and all that. But it was very, very rough and sketchy. My second one, I was there, that was before they had done the Black Cauldron, which was this big carrot they were holding out to the young yeah. animators like, well, maybe we'll get to work on this. Uh, and uh, so I did a test of this guy who was, I forgot the character's name. I don't think he was in the feature film, but he just, he's kind of this craven, you know, guy walking down these steps with a giant bone, which he then stirred a cauldron with. And then a very, the stiffest wizard in the world or horn king in the world, just a guy in a robe with antlers. Uh, lifted up his arms like he was doing a spell, and the guy transformed into a T-Rex with a big pile of drool that came out of his mouth. I got in, and then about, God, I want to say six months later, maybe more, I was just conversing with Ed Hansen again, the manager of the department, and he just threw out, you know, he says, well, well, you know how much they liked your test. And I said, no, Ed, I don't, because... You know, Frank and Ollie came in the room and they said, ah, here are the geniuses. And they immediately walked over to Ron Clemens' desk. 
because Ron at that same review board meeting had done this fantastic. You don't think of Ron as an animator because he didn't, he moved into story and direction pretty quick, but he did a test of Cruella de Vil and Jasper. It was a simple scene where Cruella is walking down an alley and Jasper is leaning on a trash can. Cruella slips in a puddle, lands on her ass. And then she pick and he laughs at her and then she picks up the garbage can lid and smashes him on the head. It was, and this is not exaggerating, and in fact, the review board, including Milt Call, Frank Thomas, Willie Ryderman, Ollie Johnson, they said that was good enough to be in the film. And it was. And Ron almost oh, hated cool. hearing that because he says, Well, what what am I supposed to aspire to you know it's that yeah. good but so obviously everybody was talking about that so even though they liked my test i didn't care i was like i was in but i never heard any sort of you know detail about it but yeah ron and on fox and hound did uh big mama the owl with pearl bailey's voice which really didn't give him a chance to show off if he had done one of the human characters i think people would think of ron as a really top animator which he was, but, but then again, he recreated the art form of animation along with John Musker instead. So I guess it was a pretty good trade-off. That's awesome. That's amazing. And that hey. is how, and that's why you ask me one question, and I go through the parks <laughs> and Wally Vogue and picnics and art of animation and my wife and you know. You make it easy for us. Yeah. <laughs> easy yeah. for us, exactly. And so, that's the show, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. And there we go. <laughs> so, uh, did you? Were you there for opening day of uh, Disneyland? No, I was born in 52. And when did Disneyland open? Uh, 52? 55. 55. My dad was there. Yeah. Okay. I only know because yeah, he, told, he I, told me all the time growing up that he was, he was there opening day. <laughs> yeah. So I might have – I probably went the first year though as young as yeah. I was but because that's when we were going to those picnics and everything. So it's always felt like part of my life. Yeah. How, where, did, where did Darkwing Duck where, – where did that start to form in your brain? I can, that, that is a very, people think, some people have thought that, oh, it was inspired by DuckTales and there was an episode of DuckTales called The Masked Mallard. Yeah. Which, uh, by the way, I had never seen that episode when we did it. But no, the specific reason that Darkwing exists is Jeffrey Katzenberg, who before DreamWorks, you know, just helped remake animation there. Jeffrey talked to me because I was, you know, I would not only produce and and you know run shows we kind of trade off me and jim megan at the time uh so if he was doing a show i'd be in development and vice versa and jeffrey told me uh, to he really liked clever names like rescue rangers started out as a pitch called miami mice which then became Metro Mice, which then became Rescue Rangers and ended up Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. But they liked, mice, they, they liked gimmicky titles because they always expected you, and when I say they, I mean Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, they expected you to do a great show. But if you had a clever title that, you know, their idea was an audience would check it out easier if there was something they liked about the title that had a, a you know, some sort of kick to it. And then it was up to us to uh, keep the audience. Anyway, there had been that episode of DuckTales called Double O Duck. It featured Launchpad McQuack. 
and he said, I want you to do a show called Double O Duck. It cannot feature Launchpad McQuack. It has to be a new character. I was not excited about that. I mean, I like James Bond and all that, but, you know, all I think about, I say, well, it's just going to be a parody and it's not going to have a lot of heart to it. And that's exactly what I pitched, a parody with not a lot of heart, and uh, which is exactly what Jeffrey said. And then he said, which I was very lucky, I recently realized that the normal thing is to, I'll get somebody else. But he told me to do it again. So I threw out what I didn't like, which is what I should have done the first time. You should always pitch something you believe in. I do not know who came up with the idea of giving Double O Duck a mask. I guess it was me. It just seems like an odd thing to suggest, but... Every drawing, whether it's by me or other people, he had a mask and he wore a white tuxedo. Had A specific artist, Bob Klein, gave him a bandana mask, which we thought was a little weird, but it looked fine. And he had a little pork pie hat, which tended to get larger and larger. Anyway, seeing him in a mask and a tuxedo and a cape, one of the guys who eventually was a story editor of mine, a quick digression, back then we were all under a term contracts. So your contract was for X many years and Disney owned anything you came up with, as opposed to the more normal thing is to say, oh, I'm, your contract is for this show, a show you created or a different show, but this is your contract. Because of that, you could, if you wanted to brainstorm, you could grab anybody you could. They could charge time to you know your show. Anyway, in bringing together a bunch of guys that I eventually wanted to work on the show, Dwayne Capizzi uh, was a story editor uh, who had done Jackie Chan's adventures and a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, yeah. Dwayne was there and he says, you know, I look at the character in his mask and his tuxedo and he, he feels more like a pulp character, like the, you know, the green hornet or the shadow. And I instantly zeroed in on that because I was too young to know those things, except through my comic fandom and, you know, and tape recordings and all of that. I love that. Uh, hence the shadow-esque, you know, mantra of Darkwing Duck of I am the terror that flaps in the night. Uh, <laughs> Who anyways, came up with that line? That line is iconic. Well, I'll, I'll get to that, that, that because it, it changed. Um, okay. Anyway, right. the so Darkwing came from the pitch one way, and then it didn't congeal until we had the heart, which was having him raise Goslin. Some early description called her... Uh, his niece since because everybody was used to uncle Donald, uncle Mickey, but right. I wanted something closer and it's like, but we don't want to deal with a mom. It's gotta be here. It's all about this guy who thinks he's a cool guy, great hero and throwing obstacles in his past. And his biggest obstacle is his ego. And then suddenly it became this thing of what if Batman had a little girl who refused to stay at home. And that was Goslin. Right. Uh, who was as crazy as we could make her. So it was like, no, she's going to be just as funny as Darkwing, just in a different way. So once we had the heart, the show sold. We made little cloisonne pins to give out at the syndication conventions called Double O Duck. And then the James Bond people said, we own Double O Duck. It's not a thing. It's something Ian Fleming created. So we had to come up with a new name. You know, once you're working with a name, I would I couldn't think of anything. So we actually had a contest, and uh, the winner got five hundred bucks, which I realized back then was a really good 
chunk of change, especially for my boss, Gary Kreisfeld, who management loved because he treated Disney's money as if it was his own. So the idea that he put up that big of a prize, that's kind of amazing. Anyway, everybody entered names, Dead-Eye Duck, Deadshot Duck, Dastardly Duck, Dimwit Duck, you know, a lot of alliteration going on. So the winner was Alan Burnett came up with Darkwing, and that was kind of like a forehead hit because I'd never even thought of Nightwing. And I said, that's perfect. That's what he thinks he is. And then we'll add duck to it to add the silly part. So we'll have both sides, you know, the adventure and the comedy right there in the title. And it wasn't it wasn't like, well, these are the five top names. It was Darkwing Duck and a bunch of trash. You know, it was just nothing came close. It was just like you're going down that list and you're saying, oh, we're in big trouble. And of course, Alan took the money and uh, I think within a year moved over to Warner Brothers where he became the story editor and the guiding light in story terms to Warner Brothers. And he started on Batman's animated adventures with Bruce Tim. And uh, we always say that we warmed him up with the or the duck night was a warm-up to the dark night another groundbreaking show <laughs> i like it anyway they uh that's where darkwing came from that's where the name came from now what was the thing we skipped over that i said oh, i'll get to that the, the I, I am, am the, the terror, terror that flaps in the night. night oh yeah actually originally there was a couple rules i made and i yeah. said he has to say let's get dangerous that's his his you know slogan I said in every episode, I think there's maybe two or maybe three episodes where he didn't say it. But I said, if you don't do it every episode, it's not going to be his slogan. That's how it catch on. And then, it, of course, we ended up putting it in a theme song. So that pretty much solidified it. But originally he said, I am the terror that paps that flaps in the night. I am the night. No, I am the scourge that pecks at your nightmares. I am Darkwing Duck. And that's what he said every episode. Yeah. It just so happened that the third episode was uh, one where Launchpad had to pretend to be Darkwing Duck. And the gag was he could never get the line right. And one of his first lines was, I'm the road salt that rusts the underside of your car. (laughs) Uh, And after reading that script, I said, that's too good not to do. And I said, we're about, like I say, three or four scripts in. I said, add that line, rewrite all the scripts we've done so far, add the line into every episode. That'll be our thing. So, you know, it was my genius to recognize somebody else's genius when they wrote that, you know, that (laughs) show to say, and that, that's the same thing. You know, again, I was not about continuity when Negaduck was introduced I said, that is a great character. Jim did a great job doing him and Darkwing at the same time, Jim Cummings. Um, And I said, I want to do more shows with them. And that was the episode where Darkwing was split into a good side and a bad side. And the story editor said, how do we not do the same story every time that we split them into Negaduck and Posaduck? And I said, no, I don't like Posaduck. Nobody likes Posaduck bring back Negaduck. <laughs> and they said, how do we explain that? And I said, you don't. Batman never <laughs> yeah. said, oh, and this is how the Joker broke out of, you know, you know, Arkham. 
or the penguin right. or the, you know, the worst, you know, revolving doors there. on a jail block. You know, you just in the Silver Age of Comics, you just turned open the page and there was, you know, Joker and Batman dancing on top of a giant typewriter or something as they fought. You didn't say, wait a minute, how did he get there? And who oils the keys of the giant typewriter? You know, you just <laughs> went for the big <laughs> visual and the cool, yeah. you know, idea, which is how I did that show, which, of course, today drives fans crazy when they try to explain things. And that's why Darkwing has six origins, I think, in the series. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, Jeff, well, I mean, because that. people said, I mean, it's not like you know, Batman had an origin, but, and Darkwing is obviously close to a Batman type character as along with the shadow and, and all the pulp heroes. Yeah. Um, but I said, what are we going to do? He's going to be sitting in a mansion and saying, I must, I need a symbol to strike evil or fear into the hearts of criminals. And then a duck flies through the window and he goes, that's it. I shall become a, wait a minute. You know, there's no, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is why the pilot was about the creation of the family unit, which yeah. really showed me that Frank and Gonus and Matt Youngberg, who do the new DuckTales, really understood Darkwing. Because I think in our first meeting, I brought up how important Goslin was. And Frank cut me off. He says, no, no, Tad, we know Darkwing Duck is the story of a father and a daughter and a launch pad. We're not going to lose that. So, you know, that's when I knew all these guys – Got it. They know stuff. Was, was Goslin a portrayal of your daughter? She was kind of. My daughter was only three at the time. So it wasn't like her younger, whatever. She was, she did not end up that way. But uh, yeah. it was, she was rambunctious and, and, you know, semi out of control. So it was kind of an extrapolation to that. And once I mentioned that, it was like, publicity would not let it go they had me say that in every single interview so, oh really yeah well i mean it's just a funny hook yeah it's like yeah. There, i mean there's some things you do to sell a show tank muddlefoot during the development of the show i'd come up with you know the older brother of honker who picks on him uh i came up with him and he was part of the pitch and then i quickly realized we don't need this character our show isn't about Darkwing living in a neighborhood. It's about the superhero guy. And yes, we'll do, we'll use the neighbors as complications, but we don't, we need Honker to come along with our team. We don't need to spend a lot of time next door. But every time my boss, who, you know, took after the first pitches, he would take over the pitches as he goes around the country or sometimes the world, selling it to different TV stations or, uh, different, con you know, selling conventions. Uh, the, uh, whenever he flipped over the card and called tank muddlefoot, he's, and he told me, he says, it always gets a laugh. <laughs> so he survived and we did a few episodes with him, hardly any. And I always figured he's upstairs with Richie Cunningham's brother, you know, who also disappeared from a show. Yeah. He was only on happy days, like the, what the third, the pilot season. And that was it. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, you're just, why are you, you know, I guess if you're really continuity conscious, you'd you'd have to waste an episode when he moves away or something. And it's like, yeah. no one needs to do that. It's just like, we're just not going to talk about him anymore. 
Yeah, you're just having fun. Stop talking about yeah. it. You're good. <laughs> so we have Jeff who who uh, procured this interview with you. And he's actually a real big super fan of yours. And he sent me a list of questions that he said I must ask you. So I hope you can we can get we can go through these. And some of them I think you've already answered, so we're going to skip them. And then some of them uh, we're going to go through. Is that okay? That's fine. All Your right. show. So you, you need a second? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. I'm not going to get any smarter. Oh, you're talking to this <laughs> okay. okay, the first one is, what does Drake Mallard do for a living? Intentionally, you never know. Right. I grew up with the show Ozzy. See, this is the type of stuff that people would never do in a show now that I went in eyes open saying, I'm going after the Silver Age. I'm going after stuff I grew up with. In the old show, black and white show, and now I guess people would have to Google it because you'd have to be pretty old to remember, uh, Ozzy and Harriet. They were <laughs> – it was a family show and there – it was the Nelson family. And Ricky, and Ricky Nelson became a rock and roll guy. But Ozzy, along with a lot of sitcom gags, our dad's – would come home and take off their jacket like Mr. Rogers and put on a sweater and a pipe. And you never knew what they did. They were at the office during the day and then they came home. But yeah. the show was about, you know, Beaver and his brother, not, you know, their parents. And I specifically thought of Ozzie Nelson as, because I think it was pointed out in some article that you never knew what he did. Yeah. And it's like, again, our show is not about Clark Kent. Our show is about Superman. I so it. I don't need to know. Clark Kent's life in the Daily Planet was both an excuse of him to find out about things and also an obstacle to overcome, a complication. But we didn't need that. We had plenty of obstacles just in Darkwing's brain, basically. His personality. Yeah. Along with Gosling, too. So anyway, <laughs> no answer to that intentionally. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So his next one is, in inserting Gizmo Duck into Darkwing Duck, did you envision the teammate to be a satire of the Batman-Superman's team-ups? Yes, nice and that was, I know people have got, gotten angry when I say, well, there's the double universe thing that people get irate. And they when I say that Gizmo Duck, we used him as our Superman, and they say, no, he doesn't even know his own characters. He's not Superman, he's Iron Man. It's like, no. Superman is beloved by everyone. Superman gets the keys to the city, a yeah. medal at the UN. He meets with presidents, all things that Darkwing would love to have, and it drives him crazy. So here's a hero character who, again, it's all about Darkwing's ego and just who, what's the worst position you can put him in with? with you know, what kind of guy do you to put him with? And again, Frank and Gonus in the DuckTales really captured it in the uh, finale of last season, uh, season two, I guess. Uh, Gizmo Duck sits down next to Darkwing Duck and uh, introduces him. Hi, I'm Gizmo Duck. When you're in trouble, you call me. And Darkwing just goes, <laughs> 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 almost like a Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck. <laughs> oh, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's perfect. But yes, the, the Superman Batman thing. Uh, was there, although it was more about ego and obliviousness, you know, yeah. ulterior motives, things like that. I love this. You could you can tell the passion you had for the animation and the stories that you were creating. 
Um, this is I, this is a treat. I really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you. So, the next thing was uh, Disney announced plans to make a sequel to its live-action Aladdin movie, and you co-wrote and directed the Retur- of Return of Jafar. Um, have you, has Disney come out to you and said, hey, do you want to lend any hand on the live-action sequel? Because uh, apparently it might be based on your animated. I've not heard that. <laughs> yeah, so it's news <laughs> to me. That no, that's, that's, not how, that's not how things work. I mean, there are writers who, you know, when they announce, oh, we're going to reboot this show, they think, yeah. well, of course they're going to call me because I did the original. And it's like, no, right. if, if people wonder, as I say about DuckTales, which I love, I said, they're doing the DuckTales for the 21st century. We did this show for the last century. Yeah. Uh, if they, and if you call back someone to revisit something they've already done, they may say, oh, no, no, I, I, I can do it differently. But you think you can, but your default when you say, oh, I know the character is going to be the character you did now almost 30 years ago. So they're not going to. The only time you're involved is if they're worried that You'll say something bad to the press or something. You right. know, I'm hoping for a Chippendale live action movie so that they, uh, uh, which they seems to be an internal development, just so that they can maybe throw me a few bucks if they're worried about my internet presence. Um, <laughs> but I doubt it. So, no, my connection with DuckTales is me being a fan, and Frank and I connected online. I went into the studio, and uh, it was so great to see the company finally decorate the halls with this new wallpaper which had model sheets of our shows and silhouettes of oh, the characters cool. from the very beginning because although we made lots of money for the company we were like the black sheep nobody really talked about tv animation and the head of features at the time was constantly felt that having tv animation exist hurt you know disney features yeah um so that was, you know, it was so nice to see the company own this stuff and say, no, it's great. And they're doing way more animation than we ever did at our busiest. That's cool. What if you could go back in time? Is there anything that you would do different in, in that during that the Disney time during those Disney years? I, I would say on on. Uh, well, you see, we didn't have the same time. I, I sent Frank a uh, script schedule. And it was like, okay, this week you have one script due. Next week you have two scripts due. Week after that, one. It was like one, two, one, two, one, two. It was just this thing you race through where now they get, and of course they're doing a continuity show. Now there's time for just the writers to start working and they map out the entire season and debate it and have, you know, they have a writer's room. Yeah. Um, and it was funny. The first time I, met some of the writers that one of the earliest questions was how big was your writer's room i said writer's room it was just <laughs> guys coming in my office pitching crazy ideas and yelling at each other till we got something to go with you know and then <laughs> you'd pitch like five ideas to you know get three for, you know through the process um so now they they really have the time so i would love to if you could get more of that feeling of at least on each story, have something formal where let's all break the story together. But really we didn't, we didn't think of those terms because it was just a a crazy schedule. In general, I would like to 
really push to get more adventurous camera work, basically, and, and camera positioning cinematics in the adventure side of Darkwing. And obviously, you know, try to make funnier gags wherever we could. But uh, again, pointing at DuckTales again, some of their staging is just top notch. If you yeah. replaced it with live action, it would be like, oh, yeah, I just watched Indiana Jones. So I would love that. But that's like, you know, even the stuff that I thought I did the best job on when I look at it, I focus on things I, I should have done. When I did my uh, second Hellboy movie animated film, the writer of it, when he saw it finished and, the, you know, we had done director's commentary and, on it. He said, wow, I really liked it. Well, until I heard the commentary and found out it was a piece of crap. Uh, it was just like me going, oh, what I really want to do here, we didn't quite get this. And it was, you know, I'm kind of right. self-aware. People say, oh, Darkwing's going to uh, be on Disney+. Plus. Let's have a viewing party at Tad's house. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, I'd be the worst person to, to watch an old show of mine. You know, well, because you, you don't ever like, want to hear my like commentary. You make. Right. It's never. I mean, it, there's still, I mean, the, the, the keep. I mean, there are episodes I love, and especially ones animated by our Australian studio, which they did such a great job. And they really understood the kind of humor and what we wanted. But I'd still even of our best shows to a modern sensibility. I'd want to cut five minutes out of it just to tighten things up. Yeah. Um, so it's hard in, in those things just to improve the, the timing. But, you know, different time. There's yeah. the, you know, the theory that a generation that grows up watching video games sees more in fast cuts. When you see a trailer, there's also, it's very typical to have a trailer just full of all sorts of, you know, quick cuts. Yeah. Uh, watch a trailer, like a monster movie trailer from the 50s, and it's like, oh my God, were people awake during this? You know, they just go on forever. A most chilling, thrilling adventure. You know, the crawling eye. And just take forever to get through their point, you know. So, cinema changes. So, so when Disney Plus came out and they had Darkwing Duck on, and they have Darkwing Duck on there, it was all over the place on social media. It's especially in the groups that I follow, people were super excited. Did, did, did you get that sense that people were like really excited that they had a place to go? Well, and I watch saw that was, it was kind of, and, yeah, that it was kind of, tra- I mean, I, a lot of people who follow me are obviously fans of Darkwing and Chippendale. Yeah. Um, so I, I certainly got that and I saw that it was trending for a while, I guess. Yeah. And I, and the company realizes it too. The, so I, you know, they may do something with a new dark wing. Of course they are in the new DuckTales. And, and if you, if I could make the rules, I would say you will not give dark wing duck to anybody else except for Frank and Gonis and Matt Youngberg and their team. Cause they, they've updated it. They've now made it heavy continuity. They have told me probably two or three years worth of stories that I would just love to see them do. And, Uh you know, every fan's dream. But, you know, if you get a little bit of success, who knows? It's up to, you know, Disney Channel or Disney Plus or whatever, if they do anything at all. But, you know, half the time they spend all this time you know, taking pitches and, you know, trying to figure out, Ooh, what name can we get or something like that? And, you know, the moment passes. So I'm hoping he, 
makes it on the air. He's still part of DuckTales, so I can't wait for any more Darkwing episodes to come out of DuckTales. Nice. How was working with doing Chippendales? Is that one of your favorites? Let's put it this way. I missed maybe two years of my son's, my eldest son's life because of that show. Uh, we, that was really early in our history and the company didn't really know how do we do these things? Yeah. And I swear now looking back on it, it's like they knew better than this and nobody said anything cause it was cheaper doing it this way. We had three production crews to keep busy and there were only two of us, myself and Bryce Malik as story editors and everything went through me. So let's put it this way. My day off was Sunday when I only went into the office for four hours. Saturday was an eight hour day at the office. And I'm not talking a computer because I was, you know, in the next room, I'm talking about literally leaving home, going into the office. And every other day was a, you know, 12 or 13 hour day. And, uh, I, you know, there were, a lot of times where writers would hand in acts two and three, I would rewrite two and three and then write act. Oh, excuse me. They would hand in acts one and two. I would rewrite acts one and two and then write act three myself just to keep ahead of the game. Um, yeah, it would usually, if you have three production crews to keep busy rule yeah. of thumb back then anyway, should be to have one extra story editor. So we should have had four story editors to feed three crews, not one other. And ultimately I was taken off the show because they, uh, they thought the show was getting too young. And Bryce once said, we're writing a show about three inch high chipmunks. Of course it's going to look young, (laughs) but, uh, you know, they brought in other people who kind of went chased their tails. I think they put out two episodes and then ultimately they gave it to uh, Ken Koontz and David Weimer's a writing team who really are responsible for early DuckTales development and the whole let's do Carl Barks idea. Anyway, they took it over and they were told, do it as fast as you can and as heavy dialogue because we don't have time to storyboard things. So they wanted a lot of talking. So it's like, you know, looking back on it, my feeling is, well, how bad were we doing if, you know, you end up settling for completely throwing quality out the window and just, you know, going for what animation is usually criticized for, you know, being a radio show. Yeah. That's interesting. Was, is there so any anyway, like- I mean, it, it's, it's like I enjoyed it while I was on it. Because of that schedule, I'm sure there's a lot of my subconscious on the screen. I mean, I've never gone back to analyze it, but I just think creatively, I think my two peaks of my career, as far as I'm concerned, are Darkwing Duck and Hellboy Animated. Uh, yeah, entirely get the Hellboy because that's exciting. How did you even get to the point of working with Mike Mignola? Well, I had there was going to be a, um, a an Atlantis TV show. We, it was called Team Atlantis, PG and all that. We started it before, while the movie was still in work, and we had great development, and people were getting super excited about it. People thought – and basically I thought 
I'm never going to get a chance to do Hellboy, so which I did pitch at Disney. I'm never going to get a chance to do that. I'm going to make this my Hellboy. And uh, it was a really cool show. One of the scripts about the Loch Ness Monster was possibly one of the best stories I ever came up with. Uh, that was you? You came up with that life. story? Yeah, and, and well, uh, Henry Gilroy and I worked on it together, although the story was mostly yeah. mine. Uh, and then Henry actually, took it to script. Tad, I've watched those movies like so many times. Those are ones I keep going. I keep going back to those. I I love the 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 original two movies that Guillermo del Toro did. You know, mm-hmm. they're great. But the animated ones, I have watched. I can't even tell you how many times. I, oh, I love. Great I, honestly, I really I love those. And I I, I had mean, no idea my, that you had my, done those when Jeff says, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna talk with Tad Stones." I'm like, "Oh." He's like, yeah, he created Darkwing Duck. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then I look and I'm like, oh, my God, he did Hellboy. <laughs> yeah. No, I was a huge Hellboy fan. It was not that kind of fan. Although, you know, there's always a suspicion. of, Oh, here's the director who says he's a big fan. And he's, you know, he's just read the comics. And it's like, no, I was there on the Hellboy.com bulletin board. Uh, you know, there are friends I made on that board that, you know, from different countries that have stayed at my house. But anyway, I mean, I just love doing that because it was a whole different type of challenge of doing a story. The idea of a haunted house where instead of Scooby-Doo, where you draw it spooky and, you know, somebody calls it a haunted house and Shaggy right. and Scooby are, you know, shaking in their boots. That it's like, no, we're going to discover it along with the characters. And uh, we came up with some imagery there that that i just loved i mean one was uh in the second one abe sapien is what you eventually learn in the backstory it was based on the the legend of uh, um, elizabeth bathory who supposedly bathed in blood of servant girls who went missing anyway we had her as a as a vampire and uh well as you know got very ambitious that part of the story is told backwards and the other part of the story is told frontwards. And, uh, anyway, you realize all these women died and there's a multitude of ghosts at this house. And Abe Sapien is in a room with big glass windows. And he says, no, I haven't seen anything yet. He goes, wait a minute. The temperature is dropping. I see a little breath coming out. And, uh, he, you know, he's on the walkie talkie, I think to somebody and then suddenly, you know, we had just been looking out the window. You cut wide, and the entire window that covers a wall is covered in bloody handprints. I just love that moment. And Hellboy walking into a dark kitchen, and suddenly knives that have been hanging land on the table and start spinning like tops on their point. And Hellboy says, I know you're in here. And he just drags his stone hand across the metal table. It was just being able to play with the mood was so much fun. It was so great. And Mike and I did write uh, a, a final script for the third one because we were supposed to do like seven of them. And then the company making them sold to stars and stars says, we don't want to put our own money into original projects. That's not what we bought this company for. Oh, but to back up how I did that, we were supposed to do a spinoff Atlantis show. Mike had yeah. worked on Atlantis and uh, I loved I obviously on Mike's work. Oh yeah, the, if you no look idea. at the Art of Atlantis books, you'll it's full of Mike Mignola artwork. Oh, um, that is awesome. 
Yeah. Uh, the uh, anyway, I would show Mike the script, and then he would just, you know, he'd come up with some monster designs until finally he says, "You know what? I don't have time to be reading all these scripts. Can you just?" Because he is an idea machine too, which he can't help sharing. He, he says, "Just tell me about the monster, and I'll take a shot at things." Then I left Disney. I said I needed some. Anyway, Atlantis didn't go because. It turned out we were going to say, well, where are we going to put it? Because, you know, Toon Disney was just being created. And we thought, oh, that's going to be where it is. And I said, okay. They pitched it. And uh, by the time it got through it and uh, and they really fought for it, it turned out it was going to be on one Saturday morning. And I knew it was kind of doomed as soon as I heard that. Because it's like one Saturday morning had been turned into kind of an educational Saturday morning you know, with some great shows of, you know, Doug and, and, um, recess anyway, the, you know, it was not a good fit cause we had not pulled back. It was like a PG plus show. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when I heard that, Oh, that's in trouble. And sure enough, we were getting all these notes that kept fighting us. And then the Disney executive who had taken over TV animation, David Staten, you know, he had really pushed for it and really called in chips to get it sold. But once it was sold, he went the opposite way and was just, you know, giving notes like we had one set in the Bermuda Triangle. The idea that they were under the ocean, there was an Atlantean crystal that had mutated fish into basic creature, the Black Lagoon type things. And he said, why do we need these fishmen? And we said, well, it's the jeopardy of the show. Why do we need Jeopardy? <laughs> I threatened to have T-shirts made with that on because, like, well, you know what? You're doing an adventure show. Jeopardy, you know, the big J comes in handy sometimes. Uh, anyway, in that Loch Ness monster story, people were saying, "Like, well, kid, I think you should keep the mystery so we don't know whether it's a monster or not." And it's like because they're, you know, and they're saying, "Why not make it like a Nimoy show?" You know where he just investigates mystery because it's not live action. It's cartoon. It's either, it's either the old man, real estate, you know, investor who is trying to scare kids away from the lock. So he can build a condominium or it's a monster. You it's one or the other. You don't say, I wonder if it was real after all, you know? So that wasn't the show we wanted to do or that we, that would have, you know, been good at all. Anyway, nobody had to worry about it because when the movie came out, it did not do well at all. They immediately withdrew support from it, so it didn't really have a chance after that. And as soon as that happened, all these people who were fighting the TV show, you know, ABC never wanted the show. Then they said, oh, can't have it. And now the company, since they withdrew support from the, the property... Uh, suddenly, uh, on Friday, the 13th of that year, we had to lay off 80 people. Oh. Yeah. It was, it was a terrible day for, not just for obvious reasons, but you know, the executive, not the crazy guy, but <laughs> one step lower down, it was really a nice guy and creative guy. Uh, he called me the night before, told me the decision. He says, I want to tell people in person, I'll be over there, you know, around 10 o'clock or something. So the next morning, I did tell my story editors and directors, but, you know, at 10 o'clock, people are saying the word was out weird. There's going to be a meeting at 10 o'clock, you know, Barry Bumber's coming over. People wondered what it was about. 
And I really regret, I just had my doors closed talking to my, you know, top staff. I really should have said, he's coming over. I don't think it's good news. Um, Just to give people a hint, because again, people thought this was one of the best things we had ever done. And the writers were way far ahead. We had premises already up into the 30s or 40s out of a 65 episode series. Yeah. So we had suffered through all these notes where those early scripts were really like really top stuff before they began getting watered down. Well, the staff was just in those early scripts and they were so excited. Some people thought he was coming over to give people bonuses. So when the bomb dropped, it was a big bomb. And, you know, almost everybody got hired back as soon as the next show was, you know, developed or worked on. But, uh, I do regret not walking around looking glum at least. Right. Uh, so there's something that would have changed. Right. But anyway, it was a, it was a great show and some, those early scripts are really fantastic because everybody got to do them. And at least the, uh, since we had, two shows had already shipped and were in production. And the third one was all but out the door. I think we got permission to make back a little money by cutting three together. And and he said, yes, you can have some connective material. Well, he thought there'd be like five minutes of connective material. And instead we did, I want to say 15 minutes to just weave them together as best we could. But even then, the uh, if you've seen the DV of Milo's Return, which is the Atlanta sequel, the first episode was my episode where it's a uh, kind of a Lovecraftian uh, creature, and uh, it had an ending that seems like a happy ending, and then there's a little twist, and you go, "Oh, jeez!" <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> the again the the executive who decried the need for uh, jeopardy he did not like that it was too spooky for him and the other executive said no it's part of the genre this is the it's twilight zone this is the thing you do we were at the final mix you know we'd finished mixing the movie we're showing it to him and he said why is that still in i didn't want that in it's like nobody ever told us to you have to take this out you know it was just a debate that cost a bunch of money he wanted it out and so we had to cut it out and remix all the the reels, which is not a cheap thing. And then when I was ready to go out on DVD, I called up the DVD people and said, do you guys like, you know, extra scenes or al- alternate scenes? They said, yes. You know, they rarely got those in animation because, you know, <laughs> it was, you drew it. It's in the movie. Anyway, I told them about the scene. They loved it. And I said, can you make it that it you can play it with that scene instead of the other scene, like as an option? And they said, oh, that would be so cool. When the executive heard about that, he said no. And it's like I'm thinking, so you're saying somebody watches the movie, then they watch the extras and see this cool twist and they want to see it in continuity with the movie. And you're going to say, no, I'm not going to let you do that. But I didn't say a word because I knew that if I said anything, 
it wouldn't be there on the disc at all. And so right. Uh, right. I'm very proud of that little twist, you know, uh, that's on the DVD. But, you know, that was dark time in the empire. What can I say? Being a creative person, putting out, you know, it's a lot of, you put a lot of yourself into your work. And then to have an executive just come in and say, we're making this change. How frustrating is that? Well, it's, I mean, you realize every, it was always funny that sometimes, you know, you get a storyboard guy and a director wanting to make a change. This is early on as they, and it doesn't happen today at all because everybody knows the what goes on. But back then, they'd say, oh, how can you give this notes or we made this cut? I said, you can't make that cut. <laughs> and they'd say, why? And you'd say, you don't understand. We got this note. And the only reason why this all is in is because we gave in on that. So if you cut out that, we're in big trouble. You know, so you were used to getting notes that turn things around. But generally, I was lucky on Darkwing Duck. Our notes were our executive who gave us notes was Greg Wiseman, uh, who, of course, later did Gargoyles. And Greg had been an editor at DC Comics. So whenever we did a Silver Age reference or inspiration, he knew exactly what we were doing. So his notes are really good. Now, he was very passionate. And then Greg once said to me, he says, look. It's my job to give you these notes. It's your show. You don't have to take them. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, never say that to the boss because the last thing he's going to give permission to is for someone not to take a note of one of his executives. But that was Greg's – I mean Greg will wear you down if he was really convinced of a different way of going. But anyway, it was great. So the notes on Darkwing were really supportive and creative. We didn't have that kind of you know roadblock. Maybe in the last season at ABC since at that point, I d it did have to go through the regular kind of note process. But even then, some of those shows were some great ones. And in fact, one is one that isn't even on Disney Plus, Hot Spells, where Gosling makes a deal with the devil, which is not a big deal then. I mean, it's a literary conceit that is constantly used in literature. Yeah. But uh, I think ABC got some letters and – you know, back then, if, if they got seven letters, that meant like 7,000 or 70,000 people thought that way. The sad thing about it is people, it's not like, the fact that it's not on Disney Plus is probably less somebody making a decision to keep it off and more somebody just grabbing, oh, here's all the episodes that played in syndication and, and at ABC and and just putting them on without saying, oh, wait, there's an episode missing here. Because when they, I mean, as most people know, when they put several of the animated shows on Disney+, Plus, they went on without being in the correct order. And especially in DuckTales, that's a very heavy continuity show and the characters are explored in a certain sequence. And it was just a random, we don't even know, it wasn't like it was an alphabetical order or something. It was just like somebody threw them all up in the air and, them, you know, however they landed was the order they put them on. And I think they've corrected most of it, if not all of it by now. Yeah. It's, anyway, I don't know how we got there. On, I wonder if you could find that, that episode somehow, you know, like on YouTube or I'm something. I'm sure it's on, it's been on YouTube and then it gets taken off and you probably can. The one part of Darkwing Duck that I wish Disney Plus would have done and Again, it's not intentional. It is kind of a lazy thing. When yeah. we did the pilot episode, we did it 
it wasn't the first thing that we did. It was not what I considered the pilot. But Darkly Dons the Duck is the story of how Darkwing meets Launchpad and adopts Goslin. It had to be to fit in the primetime spot where we showed it as a movie. It had to be a minute longer. And so I said, well, this is great. We'll design it. We're going to do this first minute of him chasing criminals and bringing them to the police department to his theme song. And then when it's in syndication, we'll just cut that out. And that's where the title goes. That is some of the best animation and probably the best example of how Darkwing can be competent and yet border on incompetent at the same time. It's a fantastic piece of animation. It really, you know, how he, things seem to be going well for him and how clever he is. And then something goes wrong. If, you know, at the time I should, once it was animated, I should have shown it to the staff every week, just as a refresher. This is what we're going for. This is what we're going for. But once that was cut out and then they put them out on DVDs, they just grabbed the syndication cut. They didn't go back to get the full version. So, um, that is unfortunate. Yeah, that it is, is unfortunate. Some, that, that is somewhere on YouTube. And if you track it down, Darkwing Duck opening or Darkwing, Darkwing, Darkly Dawns the Duck, whatever it's called. If you Google enough, you can get it down to, you know, and find that. And it's an incredible piece. So you completed a screenplay for the Phantom Claw. With which would have been the yes. third the Hellboy series. Um, yeah, the first the first Hellboy was about Mike did Hellboy short stories. And those are some of the most popular stories that he did at the beginning, and that was kind of you know, and one we adapted exactly out of the comics, the heads, and it was all these Japanese stories, but they were little vignettes tied together, and uh, unfortunately, what we tied it together with wasn't as strong. But then the second one are like Hellboy's roots in vampires and werewolf and the Central yeah. European flavor. The yeah. third one was the pulp, lobster Johnson, cybernetic apes, heads floating in jars, the mad scientist side of Hellboy. Plus, you'd see his origin. And, you know, it was a slightly different from origin than either Mike's or Guillermo's. We by the first two overlapped. So there was no real learning curve because you know after for the third one it was like okay now we know the stuff that works great and the stuff that's hard to pull off or didn't work as well that was fine in script but too difficult to execute and so the third one was written with that in mind and uh we loved it and then we paid to do it and then they said here we need to do this turok son of stone thing and then you can go on to that and in the meantime they sold the company so we never got to do the third so i'm really kind of bummed <laughs> to hear that yeah you, you, you said there's seven planned and i'm like no because i really like those ones you know that well it's funny originally dark hellboy was going to be a series on cartoon network that's how i kind of got involved in the project in a weird way that i had a meeting with sam register who was you know it was his baby to do and I was there interviewing for something else. And then the ex- the lower executive said, well, well, Tad is a big fan of Hellboy. And then suddenly Sam's energized because he was interviewing me on behalf of a different executive. Yeah. Uh, 
And it was like, but Hellboy was his project. Anyway, you know, it was going to be a series and Mike and I divided out, okay, we're going to have this many Lobster Johnson stories, this many with Abe, this, and kind of, we had a bunch of stories talked about, wrote two scripts. But then I remember it was at San Diego Comic-Con, we got the bad and good news is we're not doing the series because basically they couldn't come together. There was three partners, the studio cartoon network and the guys who revolution studios who held the rights and basically cartoon network was saying our part is this valuable. We should get this slice of the pie because we're actually putting it on the air. Um, And then they couldn't come to an agreement. So they said, we're not doing it as a series. We're doing it as a series of DVDs. And Mike, like taken aback, it was literally at his table and he says, well, I, I guess this is good news. And, you know, when you think about it, well, this is actually way cooler had we really gotten to do it, to do a series of, you know, Hellboy films. Because yeah. uh, each one could have had definitely a different flavor. So it was like, you know, that's that was the plan. Originally it was the series and then it was, you know, doing a series of movies. And it became like the project nobody saw, even – Big Hellboy fans didn't know the films existed, partially because I was at the meeting where they called in this outside marketing group and they said, "Okay, we're going to do all these. Mike and Todd are going to do all these interviews and all that. Where do we want to place them before the premiere of the movie on Cartoon Network or when the DVD comes out? And the outside marketing group says, well, you always promote the actual movie and then the the residual marketing is when you put on DVD, you just kind of repeat the stuff. Well, to, and we didn't know any better. This was early in the years of, you know, direct to videos. The problem with it is everyone was counting on it getting a big splash on Cartoon Network, but it wasn't a Cartoon Network movie. So they really didn't promote it. It was just part of this weekly thing they did. So it didn't get a huge amount of promotion. Plus, again, early days, they were afraid that if people saw it too many times on TV, they wouldn't buy the DVD. So they only showed it twice, maybe. And then, so basically Mike and I did all this publicity and magazine articles and podcasts and all of that. And then we had to say, yeah, the DVD will be out three months from now or, or whatever it is. Whereas it should be, you do all that and you say it's in the stores right now, but it wasn't like I was smarter than anybody else. It was just, that really hurt people from actually learning that it existed. Um, it's an odd thing, you know, in the middle of their I, schedule. I still tell people today to go watch those. If you're a Hellboy fan, you got to watch those movies because they're good. Yeah, they're I think, fun. I mean, my feeling is that I came closer to the, I mean, Mike always calls these things. He says, those are Guillermo's Hellboys. Those are Tad's Hellboys. Yeah. Those are, and I forget the new guy's uh, name. And then his Hellboy is the one in the comics. But I was a huge fan of the comics. So I felt like yeah, me too. mine came closer to capturing the feeling of the comics. I mean, the biggest change Guillermo did, I felt, was he made Hellboy a teenage boy, hormonal teenage boy, basically, regardless of how old he was. And to me, Hellboy was – he was the rock. He's the guy you wanted to be with because – his friends come back alive, you know? Right. Uh, and There's I just felt like, can't take. That, I mean, I, I enjoyed Guillermo's movies. It's just like I can enjoy new versions of, you know, 
Disney projects I've worked on because you divorce yourself from the old one to say, Hey, is this thing entertaining or not? Um, but, uh, yeah, that was crazy. Entertaining or is it not entertaining? (laughs) If it's entertaining, then it passes the bar, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it was like people were sweating the, the, new DuckTales versus the old DuckTales and I said I happen to really like I think it's a much better quality show but part of that is just that you know the the new one is had more time in production and it is run by fans of the original show that's what fans have to understand it's like no you guys there's people just like you on the inside making this show and luckily they're very smart and have spent most of their lives thinking about this so Well, and you can't make everybody happy. You know, you got to just make the show that you think that's yeah. going to be entertaining. And that's all you yeah. can do, right? But again, there's there's plenty of people who just want to see more episodes. I mean, all sorts of people want to do see a new Gargoyles. And it's like, how do you do that? Because, you know, people say, oh, which it shouldn't happen without Greg Wiseman. But it's it's like, well, would Greg redo this story? I tend to think not. Because uh, right. every comic he's written since then about Gargoyles has continued the story. But you can't really do a series that counts on you seeing a show from 30 years ago. Now, maybe you can if you do it on Disney+. Plus. You can say, here's the old stuff. Get familiar with it. Okay, here's where it continues on. Right. But again, it's a new century. You want to see – the company doesn't want to see just more episodes of the old thing. It's like, how are you going to make this for today's audience, such as – whole different taste and a different lifestyle. And yeah, it's 30 years later. So everything visually should be different. You know, it was funny. Maybe this is tales out of school, but Frank told me that, uh, he was in a room once where somebody said, Hey, what if we do gargoyles like go team Titans? And, uh, which is a great show. It's just like, you know, people have a beef with it because it's not an adventure show. Uh, and Frank says, without realizing it, I suddenly said, no, <laughs> out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot how he got out of that and everything. But actually, I mentioned that to Greg Wiseman. He said, I'd be fine with that. And it was kind of the Mike Mignola sensibility of he rather see somebody go crazy with his character and do something entirely different. Yeah. He's more comfortable with that than seeing somebody trying to design it like his cop comics because all he can see is where they fail. You know, yeah. it's just, you know, cause he's really hard on himself when he draws a page. It's a, you know, thing that I share where I have a hard time looking at, well, of course that's different. <laughs> I hate the stuff I've done. That seems to be a theme but, with, with creative people in general. We interview. Well, a lot, it is uh, that thing where, you know, let's go back and redo Star Trek or Star Wars with new special effects yeah, um, it's, you know, there are, well, I mean, some, especially when you go back and watch the classics Star Trek with the, and I've only seen a couple of them with new effects. It's like, that's really cool. That's how I want to watch it. I want to see the old actors. I want to see, you know, the film look better. And then when it goes to the outside of the ship, I would like to see a believable ship, you know, or at least something you're used to done nicely. It's like if you hadn't, you know, a, a show that involved effects where the creature was a marionette. It's like. That's true. Are you there? Yeah. Oh, Are you hearing oh, me? Okay. I thought, I thought maybe you, 
I thought I lost you for a second. I was like, no. Well, Tad, we've been on for over an hour already. Can you believe it? Yeah, that's how it goes with me. Okay. Like I said, just that one question. I think that first question I took to probably 15 minutes or something. Yeah. So that's okay. That's that what way. we like, man. You're you're passionate about what you've gone through, what you've done. And, and, and man, you, you gave us stories of things we never would have heard of before. And so it's it's been very enjoyable. I'd love well, to have good. you back on again because I, I feel like we have like a good another hour to two hours of things that we can talk about. Well, Next He's year is Darkwing's 30th anniversary, so. Oh, there you go. Don't even get to my Russia stories. I know. See, we need to have you back on because we got to get to that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Hey, actually, before you go, though, is there anything out there that you've done that you feel like, man, I wish this got more marketing. I wish it got more play. I wish people saw this more because it really is that good. Well, never in, in those terms. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, never, never that positive, but yeah, I'm had a lot of fun doing the, the Hellboy movies. You know, I'd love to yeah. people, at least fans, you know, know about them. I mean, I did things that were nice little things. I, one of the first things I did out of Disney was Br'er Rabbit for Universal Studios as a DVD. And I ended up not only storyboarding, but actually art directing one sequence. That was a song. And overall it was a neat, I mean, no surprises. It was the Bro Rabbit stories, but it had a great cast, and uh, you know that was neat. And uh, just I just, you know, I mean, I was on Bob's Burgers for three seasons, I guess. But uh, oh, cool! It's again, I was just at that point, I was just a storyboard guy, and that show is dialogue dependent. You're not even allowed to add in a gag, so it was kind of a killer for me the only thing that kept me going was i actually did a pilot for disney which the bob's burger studio bento box was producing and had the series gone it would have been done there because some of their projects are done outside and some are done in the studio and that was a really cute thing that was not you know somebody else pitched me in fact jennifer coyle who currently is doing the harley quinn animated show uh the r-rated one she was my director on bob's burgers and she said because they wanted me to pitch ideas for shows and she said you have to do beverly hills chihuahua because look it's such the kid she loves (laughs) chihuahuas they even did this little animated thing at the end so it was kind of a go getting back to that rescue rangers kind of era where it was animals it was you know, one of the nicest looking pilots I've ever done, yeah. but um, will never end the one of the catchiest theme songs too. right there up there with DuckTales and Darkwing. But, you know, unless they put it on as a hidden treasure or something like that, they actually. For a while, they asked me back out of retirement, they said, we're going to do the show. We ended up showing that because it was a finished pilot in full color, full animation, music and everything. They showed it to, I forget who, whatever the people at Disney Plus or Bob Iger or somebody, and they saw it and they said, "Yeah, this can be a show." Which should be. So they said, "Do you want to come back uh, to do this? Because we're just testing it down in San Diego, and if it goes well, it's an automatic green light. You'd be able to come in and go right into production." Yeah. Um, 
But I said, and that's when I realized, oh, I guess I am enjoying retirement because I wasn't tempted for a second. But I said, make sure you get Jennifer on it. She can run the show for you because she directed the pilot I did. So by day, I worked for her. And by night, she worked for me, you know, on this pilot. And luckily, I did not. So I said, you know, great. Good luck with it. You know, you want to have me come into Kibitz? I could do that. But, you know, they just felt like they needed to since I had created the show that they felt like they had to do. It wasn't like they were dying for me to do it. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm glad I did not get on that roller coaster because suddenly this thing that was a gr- automatic green light, it did test well. Hey, we're going to do it. It's fantastic. Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> and it went away. And oh, I said, geez. man, I'm glad I did not. I was not hungry to get back in the game and do this show and get pumped <laughs> for it and then have it taken away from me. So yeah, that had already once before I had, I had developed the Rocketeer for at first Disney channel and then for Disney junior got paid twice. Nice. Um, <laughs> it was actually in some ways closest to a dark wing because they said, we're not sure as a Disney junior, we've got an older audience. Uh, it's not a preschool audience. And then they described it. I said, well, that's basically the Disney afternoon. And I said, I'm going to do something crazy, and then you pull me back. So I said, so let me get this straight. It's got to be a kid. It's named Rocketeer, and there has to be a jetpack and a helmet. <laughs> and they said, yes. I said, okay. And I did a show that was probably a pilot story. I, I never got to script. No, I did development and, and story premises that were pretty detailed. It was wackier than Darkwing. It was crazy that would have been fun to really fun to do but then and i had really had my hopes up and that crushed me when they said no we're going to give it to the other person i said what other person because they said this is your show we waited until we had a show that we knew you would want to do they had never told me that and they said no anytime we do a disney project we always go to multiple people well it's like could have mentioned it to me because i thought oh if they don't go with my story idea at least i'll be producer of the show uh but that wasn't true either so I was really, I got to say, I was destroyed. But looking back, it's like I would have been 65. I ended up retiring when I was 64. I would have been 65 before we even got a go-ahead to go. Now, they did do a, a Rocketeer, and it was much more like one of their shows. But I heard it was just canceled. So I said, well, maybe I dodged two roller coasters. The, the um, new one was already canceled? That was too bad. I heard I read that on probably Twitter or something that, oh. you know, because obviously I'm in touch with a lot of animation people. But, yeah, that I don't know why. You know, I haven't heard anything about it. Maybe it has to do with, oh, they're doing a Rocketeer reboot movie or something. But from what I saw, the show was it was charming. It fit in with their other, you know, Disney Junior shows. And I told them, I said, I I just can't write those kinds of shows. They said, oh, you're a fantastic writer, which is exactly what you want to hear. And it's yeah. like, yes, I know what you're saying. I'm what I didn't say out loud is I, I don't want to do that kind of show where I have to think not for myself. I have to think down to a five-year-old's level and you can do a great quality show, but also the way things are now, the executives are literally on the show. So it's not as much as your show. And it's just like, I'm, I don't need that. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, you're going to give notes, huh? Now, if they had let me go with the wacky thing and all that, 
hey, the notes would yeah. have been fine because if, if they had if they had accepted it, they would have bought into the idea. Because my feeling was, look, you're talking about a young audience at the age of three, I think it was, three and a half. My grandson could name all the bounty hunters from uh, Empire Strikes Back. And, <laughs> you know, Star Wars is his favorite movies. So it's like, why are we holding back? That's your audience, too. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to do shows that everybody looks at and say, oh, those are for little tiny kids. It can yeah. be truly family entertainment. You just have to write them not leaving the young kid behind. You have to keep it understandable and all of that. But we'll never know. <laughs> no, I don't think there's enough of things. I don't think there's enough shows like that. You know, I got yeah. a six year old at home and it's hard to watch to find something that we can all watch together that That's keeps everybody interested. Fantastic. You know, I, I was doing conventions and I had whole families coming up and they all love DuckTales. This is before the new DuckTales. They love Darkwing Duck. I say, how are the little guys see it? Because we share it with them. We have all the DVDs and all of that. Yeah. Uh, and they were super excited for the new DuckTales. And when you watch that show, you realize because it gets really dramatic and you could get misty eyed. And, you know, that first season, especially the arc and how it ended up was just fantastic. I am the storm. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, that, it, it, that is truly family entertainment. I think that's what Walt Disney, literally the man, uh, used to chase after. It's like, I'm not writing. I'm not making these movies for kids. I'm, you know, I'm making them for everybody. And that's, I just think they should do plenty of that. And it's like you say, it's hard to find stuff that you all sit down with. Yep. Yes, well, you can all sit down with in various rooms of the house on various devices. Exactly. Well, we're all in the same room, but we're all on different devices. Uh, yeah. Yes. There you <laughs> go. It just gets frustrating well, sometimes because you, you just want Thank some... you uh, very much for uh, inviting me out to Spoiler Country. Yeah, yeah no, thank you for coming on. It's been, cool. it's been awesome. It's definitely a little bit like a back and, and do some more. Sure. From the fun time of talking with Tad Stones, the creator of Dark Queen Duck, and I, I don't know why I have to tell you all that. You all just heard us talk to him for an hour, and you know that now. You're, we're all, we're all buddies now. So <laughs> we're all, we're all super close. We're going over yeah. to his house and having beers, and well, not right now because we're all locked down from COVID. But maybe afterwards, we'll go to his house beers. When is this over? Right, we'll do a Zoom chat with beers. All right, <laughs> Zoom chat with beers. There we go. I, I hope you guys enjoyed that because I did. As you could hear, uh, Tad has a ton of stories. Oh man, I can hear him tell stories nice. in the early days. Yeah, and he's super nice. And uh, you learned about how the name came around, where the, yep. the famous quote of "I uh, am the terror that flaps in the night" came around. You bring up a great point there with the name. Like we could, we could probably tell everybody that you know, we talk about Alan Burnett. Yeah, we t- you, everybody's going to hear us talk to Alan Burnett next week. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and we ask him about. The name and the the contest and the five hundred dollars. You hear the answer to what he spent that on next week. Yeah, which I could tell you right now, but don't make him listen. Okay. Make him wait. <laughs> make him make him wait. Make him salivate. Gotta come back next week if you want to know. <laughs> I love it. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we loved creating it for you. Yeah. Uh, if you love those types of interviews, we have a plethora. 
back at spoilerverse.com. I, so many. I, yeah, I implore you. I encourage you. I tempt you to go yeah. check out all that we have to offer. I mean, tomorrow you can hear us talk to Steve Jablonski, who is the composer for Bloodshot and for Desert Housewives and so much other cool stuff. And that's just tomorrow. That's not counting all the cool stuff like Alan Burnett next week and so much more. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's about it. Yeah, that's a show, man. That is a that show. That is a show of all shows. Yep. <laughs> I the just darkest, say- the wingiest, the duckiest of all the shows we've done. <laughs> the darkest, the wingiest. <laughs> <laughs> He's so duckrific. Right. <laughs> Tad, I just want to say thank you for coming on. Yeah. All right, guys. We're out of here. And uh, in the oceans of podcast, we are Cthulhu. <laughs> and as Cthulhu likes, open the mind. I almost went high pitched on that, but I was like, we're so dorky. (laughs) We're so dorky. I know, I love it. (laughs)